Good morning, everybody. We've been uh, walking through the book of Judges, and today we come to one of the best-known stories in Scripture, the story of Samson. Um, and to start off, I figured it'd be fun to do some word association. So, you know, psychologists about 40 years ago, they came up with this idea of word association. I'm going to say a word. You guys turn to your neighbor and say the first word that comes to your mind. Get ready. Get ready. All right. So see the first word. You guys, you guys know word association? It's basically this whole idea. You know, if I say the word Al, and you say the word Capone or Bundy or Moeller, that's going to kind of say, you know, what you're thinking. If I say the word Al and you say Cajal, might be a problem. Um, so we're going to dive in. What's the first word that comes to your mind? Turn to your neighbor and tell them when you hear the word love. Every, I heard sex, okay. Anything else? God? Good, okay. How about the word how about the word church? What's the first word that comes to your mind? Quick. Family. Family? What? Building? Jesus? Jesus? Okay. How about the word biceps? <laughs> That wins. That wins. What's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word Samson? Hair, Delilah, Samson. <laughs> Here's the first image that comes to my mind um, when I hear the word Samson. It's, uh, you got that picture? Yeah. That's uh, Kenny the bodybuilder. That's Kenny. Um, Pastor Kenny, who was just up here leading songs, that's my gift to you. You can't unsee that image now that you've seen it. I made that on my phone this week and sent it to him. I said, I, I was thinking of Samson, and this is what came to mind. But no, I think of, of, I think of a, like a roided out buff guy, right, when I think of Samson. And there's a question as to whether Samson was well-built at all. He's not supposed to be the picture of the ultimate man, right? He's actually a picture of what God can do in his people through the power of his spirit, right? That's, that's the whole thing with the story of Samson. So he probably didn't look jacked. He probably looked more like the actual Kenny Lyles. He's also a very studly guy, right? He's <laughs> Kenny, yeah. So Samson, Samson's story comes to us, and um, toward the, it's toward the end of the book of Judges. He's actually the final judge that's specifically talked about. And um, we get a lot more material on him than the other judges. We actually get three chapters worth of material on Samson. And that's because Samson's life kind of sums up the whole message of judges. And as we'll see, he even points us beyond judges to a greater hope. Okay, so through him, God is going to give us a picture today of how God saves his people. And God's people need saving, right? I mean, if we follow along in the book of Judges, we see this sin cycle just keep repeating. The people are walking with God for a little while, and then they forget God, and they forsake him, and they fall into sin. That's that first big broken time where they start saying, you know what, God, we're kind of forgetting about you, and we're turning to look to other gods to save us. And what, what happens is God allows those gods and the people that serve those gods around the Israelites to, to enslave them, 
and turn them over. And so the third step we see is supplication. In their suffering, finally, they, they remember God, and they turn back, and they repent, and God saves them. He um, responds by raising up a judge, and then there's this time of silence, and things go along okay until people, again, forsake God because they forgot him, and they uh, totally fall into idolatry again. And so as we've looked at this cycle, I think if you're like me, you're kind of like hoping that they're going to snap out of it at some point. Like, when are they going to break the cycle? When are they finally going to get free of this whole thing? But we've seen again and again and again, by now we're ready to throw up our hands in despair. They just keep falling back into the cycle. And then suddenly this story comes along, and the entire narrative structure of Judges shifts, and we get this really deep, detailed story loaded with symbolism. So you guys ready? We're going to walk through uh, 13 and part of 14 today, and... Instead of reading the whole thing up front, we're just going to kind of go verse by verse, if that's okay with you guys. All right. It's okay with one of you. That's good. (laughs) 13, chapter 1. Here we go. And the Lord of Israel... I'm sorry. (laughs) Wow. Got to read the Bible correctly. Okay. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years. This is the longest time Israel's been enslaved. And in Hebrew, 40 is the number both of completion and the number of judgment. So this is basically one way of saying, in other words, this, it symbolizes the ultimate judgment on the sin of Israel. And who is God using? The Philistines. The Philistines. And the, the Philistines were bad. I mean, they were really, really bad. First, don't miss, they were really sophisticated. I know in our culture, when we use the word Philistine, we tend to think of people that are uncultured, unsophisticated, but the real Philistines were anything but. Their weaponry, their architecture, their culture were far beyond any other civilization in the area at that time. They were the first to work with iron, right, and make iron weapons in, a, in, in the Bronze Age. They brought the world out of the Bronze Age. They were the first ones to employ battle formations in war. Their art, their pottery, their architecture were all advanced. So essentially, you've got this group of people who are building multi-level buildings and bridges while the Israelites at this time are kind of hanging out with their sheep in their tents, okay? So they're, they're far advanced. But secondly, they were depraved. They were, like, in every way, a militarized society, and they would built their whole civilization on piracy and conquest, kind of like Vikings, okay? And their parties were epic for their debauchery. They pioneered this thing called a mishta, which was a week-long drunk fest, right? It was just drinking and uh, like a caker, okay? I know, I know you thought San Diego State students invented that. They didn't. It was the Philistines, okay? They were also big into pork, so... Israel's hills are loaded with pigs, which, of course, are unclean for Israel um, with Mosaic law. And they're unspeakably cruel because they'll go in, they'll conquer a people, and then they'll literally, like, cut off parts of men's bodies and, you know, demolish them and, and ruin their pride, ruin any sense of manhood for them, torture them, and impale them. So uh, buccaneering, bacon, beer, and barbarism. That's the Philistines because I'm a preacher and you have to have, uh, what's that called? Literation? What is it? Mnemonics? Whatever you call it. (laughs) They represent these enemies of God, and they represent the enemies of God at the strongest, militarily, culturally, 
economically, they are superior to Israel. Verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Let me make five-ish observations about God's salvation from these first few verses, okay? First of all, what's missing between verses 1 and 2? They're enslaved in their sin, and God sends an angel. But in between, there's no cry for repentance. They're not reaching out to God this time for repentance. These people, like, aren't even asking to be saved, and they're not seeking God, so God seeks them. Secondly, check this out. It's the first time a judge is promised before birth. Every other judge, God raises up somebody who's already alive. In this one, God sends an angel and promises a judge before his birth. It's essentially God saying, I've got to start from scratch. I'm not just going to select one of you who's already got idolatry and all that in them. I'm going to raise up somebody fresh and start from scratch. Third, the promise is given to an older, barren woman with no kids. Now, barrenness in this time, as we've said before, is the ultimate devastation for a woman. In our days, it's hard too, right? Emotionally, it can be devastating. But in those days, Back then, it was, it was emotionally devastating, and in addition to that, you also just had no hope for your future if you were barren, because it's an agrarian society, so you got a farm, and so if you have more kids, you make more money, and you have more wealth, right? But also, in that society, there's no social security, there's no 401ks, so the more kids you have, the more you're probably going to be taken care of in your older age, right? And uh, for the nation itself, economically, militarily, health was completely dependent on women having tons of kids. So women who had lots of babies were seen as heroes. Women who couldn't have babies were basically seen as useless. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this, barrenness in the ancient test symbolized hopelessness, for without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for your people. Of course, today, most people don't think like this, right? When we think about hope for the future, we think about what kind of job we have, what kind of school we graduated from, how much money our parents put into our trust funds. You know, those are the things that we find hope for our future. But this woman, from her vantage point, she has no security. She has no prospects for hope in the future. So God works through someone who's not powerful, who's not noble, or even hopeful. Fourth, we're never told her name. Which is kind of an odd detail, given the amount of detail in this story, right? We're told her husband's name, Manoah, and we know that Judges isn't just sexist because there's plenty of women that are named in the book. Deborah, Jael, we've already talked about many of them. But Samson's mother is only referred to as the woman, right? Why is that? Most commentators agree that the author is intentionally painting her as obscure to make the point that God works through someone who's unknown and overlooked by society. And in fifth, lastly, in a minute, we'll get to some clues that she's not a God-seeking woman, that God is choosing to work through someone who's broken and imperfect. So here's the lesson of salvation, and it's so important. God brings his salvation to a people who are not crying out in repentance, who have no talents or gifts or righteousness to distinguish them from any others people who have no hope and no prospects in themselves who are broken and flawed. 
In other words, God doesn't love the lovely. He makes lovely those he loves. God doesn't choose the righteous. He makes righteous those he chooses. God doesn't save the strong. He makes strong those he saves, which means that no matter who you are today, or what circumstance you find yourself in today, or what mistakes you've made, or what weakness you feel, because of God, there's hope for you. Amen? Amen? But that hope won't be found in yourself. That hope won't be found in you turning over a new leaf for yourself. That hope won't be found in you sticking to the metaphor, finding a way out of barrenness and procreating on your own. That hope will be found by receiving God's gift of grace his choice of you. And that's one of the most humbling, sweetest truths to me. That God set his affection on me just because. I love the way he says it to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. One of my favorite passages of scripture. He says this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You weren't the strongest or most sophisticated or even the most moral, but it is because the Lord loves you. Do you see that? Why does the Lord love you? Because he loves you. Isn't that circular reasoning? Yes, it is. I, I love this because sometimes my wife will come to me. Is she in here? <laughs> and she'll say, she'll say stuff like, I don't, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but she'll say, hon, why do you love me? You know, just like one of those mm, moments, I, I, I just am looking for something, right? And I used to say, oh, baby, it's because you're so hot. That's why. Or, you know, I love your personality. Or I'd find some attribute of hers and pick it up. But the thing I noticed that she would do and the thing I would do when I did the same thing to her is that I would start to look for my identity in that thing that we held up, right? If she said, babe, it's because you're so buff, guess what I found myself doing all the time? push-ups. I got to keep buff, right? Because I don't want to lose that love. And one of the things that um, an older preacher said that really stuck by me when he was preaching on this text is he says, you should tell your wife you love her just because you love her, because she is her, and not highlight any one attribute. And I thought, man, that's what God does. Maybe that's what I should do. So and here's, here's the thing. If you're like, why? Here's the deal. If I know that God loves me just because he loves me, then I know that on my best day, he doesn't love me anymore. He already loves me that much. He can't possibly love me more. But on my worst day, he doesn't love me any less. If I believe that God chose me when I was running as hard and fast away from him as I could, when I was, as scripture says, his enemy, then I know he's not going to discard me when I stumble. So here's the thing I've learned after 30 years of walking with God. I'm not holding on to God nearly as tightly as he's holding on to me. Have you guys learned that? The reason I have hope for the future, the reason I'll know I'll make it is this. His grip on me is stronger than my grip on him. So the angel tells her, he says, she's going to have a son. Verse 4, therefore be careful to drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Real quick, this is how we know that she wasn't a God-seeking woman in this time. They'd already been given the Mosaic law. They already knew they weren't supposed to touch unclean animals or eat them, and the angel has to say, hey, stop doing that. Don't eat unclean animals, okay? Um, so she knows, uh, we know she's not honoring the covenant because nobody is. Verse 5, 
For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Two quick points. Nazarite to God from the womb. First thing, from the womb. Where did Samson's vow begin? Was it after he was born? No, it was from the womb. In other words, God sees a person as a person from the womb, right? Not after. In fact, God sees a person, I would argue, scripturally, even before that. So much so that his mother has to keep the Nazarite vow for him while he's in her body. So biblically, God is showing us time and again that life begins in the womb. A mother's womb is a sacred, safe place for the lives that God is shaping and forming to be raised, to be shaped into the person God is making them to be. And our culture struggles with this one big time. Our culture struggles with this whole dialogue about when life begins and when is life sacred. And without getting too deep off into this, right, we have to ask ourselves, and Kenny touched on this last week, if we are going to allow our culture to be the lens through which we look at Scripture, or if we're going to allow Scripture to be the lens through which we're going to look at our culture, something is going to take the ultimate role in our life that defines what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what... It shows us the ways of God. And either we're going to stand on the top of the mountain of culture and look down upon the word of God, or we're going to stand upon the word of God and say everything in culture is defined by what God says. So God says from the womb, uh, point number two, the child would be a Nazarite to God. Let's talk about that Nazarite vow because it's really intense. First of all, no haircuts. No haircuts. You can't cut your hair at all during the vow. Secondly, no alcohol. You couldn't drink anything from the vine. No Cabernet, no Coronas, no Bud Light, not even two buck chucks from Trader Joe's. Even Welch's grape juice was off limits, right? Three, no dead bodies. You couldn't touch any dead body of any kind. So usually when somebody took a Nazarite vow, it was really kind of a short seasonal thing that you would do for a time to draw nearer to God. It was like a really intense fast. But Samson does this from the womb. He never cuts his hair, which means he probably looked like a cross between Duck Dynasty and ZZ Top, right? Um, but he's a symbol of God's ultimate Savior who would be set apart and holy and sinless. And the angel continues, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. That word begin really stuck out to me. I was reading through this. That's a weird word. Who's going to finish it? By the way, this is the last story in the book of Judges. The, the book ends with Samson beginning something, and then the book ends with it still not being completed, not being finished. Where's the conclusion? Aha, now you're reading the Bible the right way because the story won't be completed here. The story is not going to be completed until the New Testament. In fact, so many of the stories, so many of the tensions in the Old Testament text don't come to completion until the New Testament. The Bible is one comprehensive story of God. It's not just a bunch of independent, like de detached stories. And so it, it crescendos in Christ, and all of these themes get woven together beautifully in Christ. At the end of the sermon, we'll catch a glimpse of that. Um, verse 6. Actually, I'll just tell you guys what happens through the next few verses. Um, verse 6, basically, uh, Manoah's wife has come to him, and he says, 
dude, you're seeing angels. She's tell, they're telling you crazy stuff. You're barren. You can't have kids. You've been hitting the strong drink yourself too much. Maybe that's why the angel told you not to hit the strong drink, right? Um, and then uh, basically he says, God, if it's true, send the angel back. And the angel comes back and gets Manoah. And um, she runs and gets Manoah. And here's what Manoah says to her, verse uh, 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please detain us, or please let us detain you while we prepare a young goat for you. But the angel of the Lord won't do it. Why? Because to break bread with somebody at this time meant that there was peace between you. And there's no peace between God and Israel right now, right? So Manoah starts to interrogate the angel, question after question. Verse 12, Manoah said, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is to be his mission? And what is your name so that when your words do come true, we may honor you? Question after question, he's, he's saying to this angel, right? And I'm like, on one hand, this guy's got some nerve, right? And on the other hand, doesn't it make sense? Like, can't you relate to Manoah? Don't we want details when God gives us a word sometimes? Like, we, we want to know what's around the corner, we want to feel like we're in the driver's seat of our lives. We want to know what's on the other side of every mountain in our lives. And the angel of the Lord, look at how he responds to him. Why do you ask my name, verse 18, seeing it is wonderful? And that word wonderful means divine. Every time that word is used in the Old Testament, it's referring to God. In fact, this phrase, angel of the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, is is normally a theophany in the Old Testament. That means it's a manifestation of God himself showing up. So God is showing up. God is giving him a promise. It's not just one of his angels. This is God himself. And see, Manoah, he wants to know what to do, and God says, this is who I am. Think about that. When God does this it, it, it's so typical of what we see in the Old Testament. And a point I felt to really draw out of this today was this. You're going to have to understand this if you're going to make it in the faith. You're going to have to understand what happens here because all of us, we typically ask God for greater details. Why this? What's going to happen next? And instead, God gives us a glimpse of who he is. He does it with Abraham. He does it with Moses. He does it with Isaiah and countless others. You see Jesus do this with his disciples. We want explanation, and God gives us revelation. It's so important. If you require answers to all the what and the why questions in order to believe, you'll never make it in the faith. Many of us, we want detailed explanations, right? Like, hey, why did this happen? What's going on next? Why is the world like this? God, what's in my future? Before you can trust God or feel at peace in your life. You're not going to make it. And I can, I can relate because I struggle with the same things. I always want to know more of the why and the what. And God says to me, can you see my name? That it's wonderful? That that's who I am? Do you, do you trust me enough to follow me? I, I had one of these times uh, last week. I was just kind of feeling overwhelmed with a bunch of stuff. And I went out to Sunset Cliffs. And I stood out at the, you know, the park at the end of Sunset Cliffs, and you can stand out and you see, like, forever. And I could see all the way out to the horizon. I looked down to the left. I could see the, uh, they call them the Coronado Islands, I think. They're in this Mexican waters. See all the way up north. And uh, I just had the thought, man, everything I'm looking at right now, God 
knows every human that's living in this area. Every person represented here, he knows their hearts, he knows their past, their future, he knows everything going on with them. And everything I'm looking at right now, I can barely conceive with my mind. And it's like, it's like the, the head of a pin on a map. It's nothing compared to the rest of the globe. And God knows everything that's going on with everybody. And the earth is just a pin on a map of our galaxy, if that, right? And our galaxy is just a pin on the map of the universe. And I can't even, my brain can't even go there. I have a finite mind. I'm trying to understand an infinite God. And all of that came into existence when he said the first four words of Scripture. Well, no, he didn't say the first four words of Scripture. In the beginning, God, sorry. In the beginning, God. If you can believe those first four words, that he said, let there be, and there was. That the sun puts out, how many billions? Hold on, I wrote it down. The sun puts out enough energy in one second to supply all U.S. energy needs for 13 billion years. If the Bible's true, God said, let there be, and the sun was there. That's the kind of God we're talking about. The kind of God who could take all that power, and Jesus is sitting in front of 5,000 people without food, and can somehow take five loaves and two fish and multiply it and feed them all? How much energy did it take to do that? How did God do that? And I start running into these walls with my finite mind where I'm trying to understand an infinite God and I can't. Like, don't get me wrong, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Christianity is so intellectually stimulating, it's beautiful, but even it's because our minds are finite, there are places we can't go, there are parts of God we will never see and never understand. What do we do with that? Here's my question, am I really in a place to question such a God? Think about God's compassion that while I was running from him, his grace overtook me, that he came, humbled himself, came as a man, and then died in my place for the penalty of my sin. Like, what love? Think about the fact that God is so holy and so beautiful. Like, all of the beauty, all of the goodness, all of the love and justice and pleasure that we desire flows from him. Can I trust that God? with the questions I have in this life. Can I trust that God with my future that seems so uncertain to me? At some point, I either believe that his name is wonderful or I don't. We want an explanation, and God gives us revelation. So Manoah, verse 19, took the young goat and the grain offering and offered on the rock to the one who works wonders. So instead of dinner, they have a sacrifice. And when the flame went upward toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife fell on their faces on the ground. And Manoah said to his wife, I'm imagining his face in the dirt, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, and I love this, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such Great things as these. Now, since we've been harsh on Samson's mom up until now, let me point something out amazing about her. Her response to this impossible prophecy is better than the women in the Old Testament in so many ways. It's so full of faith. You remember Abraham's wife, Sarah? When she got a promise like this, what did she do? She laughed. Yeah. 
And you remember uh, in the New Testament, um, John the Baptist's mother, who's, who's, wife, or, uh, who's the wife of the high priest there for that year, what did she do? They doubted. They doubted the, the word of the angel, right? In fact, there's only one person in the Bible who had this same kind of faith. You know who it was? Mary. Yeah. Yeah, Mary, when she heard about the impossible, she said, well, be it unto me according to your word. I believe what you promised, and I will do all that you've said. Guys, listen, there's only one response that pleases God. I believe what you've promised, and I'll do what you say. This woman, she's not very impressive in any other category. She's obscure. She's not wealthy. She doesn't have much hope for her life. But here she just says, yes, Lord. That's what he's looking for. Yes, Lord. Question, have you said that to him yet? Have you said, yes, Lord? The great substitute for that kind of response of faith is is religion. Kenny talked about it last week, right? Religion negotiates. Religion is built on negotiation. God, I'll give you this. I expect you to do this for me. But Jesus doesn't negotiate. Catch a picture of this. Jesus owns it all, including you, right? He owns everything already. And you can have one of two postures with him, faith and surrender or rebellion. Jesus doesn't come and try to like woo you and say, oh, look it, um, I'm just going to love you a lot, and I'm just going to whisper nice things in your ear, and I'm really hoping to make bad people better. No, Jesus comes on the scene to rebels, and he demands they lay down their arms. He doesn't come to consult with you. He doesn't come to influence, or he doesn't come to help. He comes to take over. There's this old bumper sticker I used to see when I was a kid. It said, God is my co-pilot. You guys seen that? Which I was like, if God's your co-pilot, you should switch seats. Really bad idea. The truth is, like, God, when he shows up, he, he actually says, hey, your life, that's my car. You stole it. <laughs> like, get, get out of the driver's seat. Get in the back seat. I want you to say to me, God, I trust you. I love you. Take me wherever you want to go. It all belongs to you. Who would have known Carrie Underwood got it right? Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands. I can't do that. Okay. That's the relationship. It's called lordship. And it's either, it's one of those things, it either is or it isn't. Like, that relationship for you. It's, not, like, it's like that relationship with your wife. If my wife came to me and said, Vince, have you been faithful to me? And I said, I've been 96% faithful to you. What? I wouldn't make it. You can't be 96% faithful to somebody. You're the faithful or you're not. And Jesus is either Lord of your life or he isn't. And by the way, that whole idea of negotiation, we don't have anything to negotiate with. Like Samson's mom, we are barren. We are unrighteous. We are entitled just to condemnation, right? That is what we deserve. And it's pure grace that he set his love upon us. It's purely by grace that Jesus comes to save us. It's pure grace that he calls us to lay down our lives because we keep messing them up. And he can make things so much better. If someone else preaches that God wants to show up and be your consultant or give you life on your terms, trust me, they're preaching a false gospel. You don't even need God at that point, if that's true, because you already think you know what's best for you. And you've taken the God whose name is wonderful and you've turned him into a puppet, a genie in a bottle. 
But when you realize this truth, you realize that you don't have anything to negotiate with. You just fall down on your face. You lay it all down. Religion is the great counterfeit to true faith and surrender. So listen, you either said to Jesus, I believe all you've said. I believe what you've done to me to accept me, and I'm ready to follow you with my whole life. Or you haven't. You're in one of those two camps. Religion negotiates. That's what Jephthah did last week. Faith just surrenders. And and hear me. The thing that's going to free your heart is to see how glorious and gracious and good the Father's heart for you is. The more you can see that, the more you'll be excited to lay everything down at his feet because you know he'll take the broken pieces and put them back together again the way they're supposed to be. He'll take that solar system that's running out of muck, right? Like when we've taken the sun out of the middle of the solar system and put ourselves in the middle and all the planets are going crazy because it can't handle the gravitational pull, you say, okay, God, you get back in the middle, pull everything back together. Organize my life how you want it. And that is the point that we need to come to. Verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. Right here we see an indication of trouble. Samson's name means son of the sun, right? Which is the sun god who's one of the gods the Philistines worship. So just like Israel has lived in compromise up until now, worshiping all the surrounding gods, Samson is going to live in compromise In fact, let me give you four problems really quickly that will plague Samson's life, and we'll touch on these more next week. First one, compromise. Samson is going to break all three of the vows that he took, that his mother took for him. Remember, no wine, no dead bodies, no haircuts. In chapter 14, Samson falls in love with a Philistine girl, which is obviously a problem in itself because she's not of the same faith that he is. She doesn't even share that. And he throws himself a misstep the Philistine kegger party, right? And um, a few days before the party, there's a lion that attacks him. Look at uh, Judges 14, 6. One of my favorite verses in this passage. And he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. That's one of my favorite phrases in the story. He tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. (laughs) Who's tearing young goats? Was this a common thing back then? I've never torn it. Okay. Anyway. Well, a few days later, right, um, he sees the carcass of the lion, and he notices there's a beehive in it with honey, and he reaches into the dead body and scoops the honey out, breaks that part of the vow. And then, of course, we know the end of the story, which we'll get to more next week. He has a haircut, right? Um, and he ends, up, he ends up falling down totally. So he embodies compromise, compromise too, impulsiveness, Throughout his life, he's controlled by his passions. He gets hungry for honey, he eats. He wants a woman, he takes her, right? Doesn't matter if she's a Philistine or a prostitute, whatever. When, when he tells his parents that he wants to marry a Philistine, they object and they say, right, no, she's a Philistine. And what's he say in verse 3? He says, get her for me because she pleases me. Like, he's so impulsive. In fact, he gets mad and he kills people. And that is Samson's strength. Like, the only time, like, really righteously at the end of his life when he doesn't do this is is, is the very last act. But his entire life, every time he's attacking people, showing his strength, it's because he just got mad about something. He got personally insulted. He gets ticked, and he goes, kills a bunch of people. Okay, check this out. Um, There's this uh, one illustration of of this, uh, this roid rage, I guess you'd call it is uh, after Samson kills the lion and eats the honey out of his belly, he's on the way to this bachelor keg party. And he, um, he, tells, he says, I-, I got an idea to get something. 
I'm going to make a riddle, and I'm going to tell these 30 Philistines that are there, if they can guess the riddle, I'll buy each of them a new suit of clothes. But if they can't guess the riddle, they each have to buy me a new suit of clothes, right? So he's, he's excited. He shows up. He tells them this riddle. Um, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And they try to figure it out, and they can't. So they go up to his wife, wife-to-be, and they say, hey, listen, you need to find that riddle out for us. Because if you don't, we're going to burn down your father's house, and we're going to kill you and your family. <laughs> so, you know, nice bachelor party. So she goes to Samson, and she goes, please tell me the riddle. And he won't tell her. So then it says she weeps and says, you don't love me. Look at verse 17. She wept before him the seven days of that feast. I mean, that's a miserable bachelor party. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard, then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, uh, Samson, uh, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? So they guess it, right? And then I love this. He says another thing. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Guys, two things. Don't let anyone plow with your wife. Two, don't ever call your wife a heifer, okay? So Samson's ticked, and how does he respond? He goes out and kills 30 other Philistines, gets their torn, bloody clothes, and brings those to the guys and says, here, here's your clothes. His life, this is life in a nutshell. And it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic, if it wasn't so broken. He's impulsive. And honestly, I was thinking about how much of Samson was willing to risk. Like, he was willing to risk the fact that he is the strongest person who's ever lived for a little taste of honey. And I thought, who would do that? And yet at the same time, if you pause and think about it, like, that's, that's the same temptation most of us guys feel, right? We, like, man, so many of us, I'm tempted to, we trade God and his promises for the slightest taste of pleasure, Guys who throw away their marriage for a taste of porn. College guys who won't seriously consider the lordship of Christ. They want to just continue sexual exploits throughout college, and they won't give up and follow God. Are you willing to trade God for a little taste of honey? Three, entitlement. I won't go into this one. We'll hit it more next week, but that's his attitude. I deserve that, honey. I am awesome. I will take it, right? Four, pride. Everything in his life is about him. If you read through this chapter, which I hope you will, count how many times when he's talking he says the word I. Look at how he leverages his God-given strength for him most of the time. Eventually, he allows his hair to be cut because he's convinced himself that his incredible strength comes from himself and not from God. So let me say this to you guys in here. Four things are the greatest threats to what God wants to do in your life. When you compromise, when you become impulsive, and you live with a sense of entitlement, and you walk in pride. But that's, that's next sermon. Let's bring it back to this sermon. It's at the end of chapter 13, and I want you to see something that Samson from the beginning is pointing beyond judges. Tim Keller says it this way. Samson is the last judge in this book, the great hope for Israel. We wait to see how we will rescue and rule God's people in obedience to God, and in almost every way we will find ourselves disappointed Why? Because Samson is the strong man who became weak, but he points us to another, another who was strong but became weak. Can you guess who I'm talking about? 
Jesus, you've got at least one. I think um, one of the coolest points when I, when I was reading through this passage is the fact that Jesus is the one who's going to complete what Samson begins. Remember that word, begin? Jesus completes what Samson begins. Jesus' birth and Samson's birth are really similar. They're both born to women who can't have babies. Mary is a virgin. Samson's mother is pregnant, right? And um, there's one big difference, though. The birth of Samson brought joy and honor in the midst of shame, but the birth of Jesus actually brought disgrace and shame. Jesus was, like, because everybody's looking at Mary and Joseph and saying, hey, they're, uh, they're having a baby out of wedlock. And in that culture, it was just so taboo. Samson's mom was barren. Mary was a virgin, right? Samson's birth brought celebration and honor. Jesus was born into poverty and shame. Why? Because we preached about this a few weeks ago. The, very, the real Savior will not save us simply through his power and his strength, but the real Savior would have to enter into our shame and take it on and die for it. Jesus is the true and better Samson who will succeed at every place Samson fails. Like Samson, Jesus' strength would not reside in how well he was built or in his physique or his charisma or his beauty, but in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But unlike Samson, Jesus never compromised. Samson's life was composed of compromise, right? That was basically all he did. Jesus embodied character. He would keep every detail of the law of God. And instead of being controlled by his impulses, Jesus was controlled by God's will. You remember that when he goes out to the wilderness and, and Satan comes and tempts him and says, hey, here's some bread. And he says, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Jesus always did what was good and right and perfect. He always honored the Father with everything he did. Even in his last moments in Gethsemane before the cross, when he cried out in agony, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to face what I'm facing. But he said, nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, and Jesus, Jesus was not controlled by his passions, but by passion for God. Anyone could have been proud. It was Jesus. But Jesus humbled himself. And though Jesus was entitled to the throne, he would take the role of servant and submit to the humiliation of the cross. Toward closing, let me read Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We may stand in awe of Samson today, but I stand in awe and amazement of the presence of Jesus. Jesus is the real Samson, and knowing his glorious life will enable us to live like Samson should have lived. See, Jesus was powerful like Samson. He was, he was, he was so powerful, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but you know what got no, uh, He laid all that power down for you and I. He became weak so that we could become strong. Do you believe God wants to use you powerfully like he used Samson? What gets in the way of that? What gets in the way of us being used by God? Us, right? 
It's often us. We do. We can destroy. We can disqualify ourselves. Almost everybody will. And the irony of Samson is that he was strong on the outside, but he was so weak on the inside. But when you see and you believe what Jesus did for you, that he became weak for you, you'll receive the internal strength of character to live the way Samson couldn't. In Christ, you can be stronger than Samson. When you see that Jesus was the real Samson, the one who gave up his life for you, that he was the strong who became weak, that he was the rich who became poor for you, that he was the righteous who became sin from you, it will transform you from deep within. And instead of saying, I want, like Samson did, you'll say, I want God. I want to do his will. Instead of saying, I deserve it. Is that an American thing? New iPhone X. I deserve it. Right? You'll confess, I really deserve death but he gave me life, and you'll gladly live your life for him. Instead of saying, I can handle it on my own, I don't need anybody else, you'll say, I can't handle anything without God, but with God, I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me. Instead of saying, my strength, my talents, my abilities, it's all about me, you'll say, oh, Jesus, it's all about you. It's all from you, it's all through you, Were the whole realm of nature mind, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God, I give it all to you. Are we tracking? The gospel is the great crescendo of God's story. And we see this. The reason I'm trying to bring this out in the sermon um, is because Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, he tells his disciples, after he's resurrected, he opens their understanding to see that all scripture is about him. And I'm sure when he got to Samson, he probably said something like what I just said to them, that he was the real Samson. And as you listen to this in closing, you may wonder why you always hear these kinds of comparisons at the end of our sermons, right? Jesus is the true and better Samson. Jesus is the ultimate judge. Jesus is the greatest embodiment of the wisdom of Solomon, etc. You hear that kind of stuff. I'll tell you why. The goal of every sermon is worship. Like if, if we wanted you guys to leave here with a bunch of notes right, in, in a lecture about Samson um, and new information, that probably wouldn't help you. If we wanted you guys to leave here with a bunch of action steps, like here's 10 ways to be like Samson, that probably wouldn't help you. Right? In fact, it would probably be a really bad thing, actually. <laughs> the goal of a lecture to, is for you to leave with a page of notes. The goal of a motivational speech is for you to leave with a, a page of action steps. But the goal of a sermon is for you to leave worshiping. A time when the pen goes down, the eyes go up, and you see God high and lifted up. And you, it, you, you start moving from, here's all the things I need to do for God, and you start saying, man, here's all the things God did for me. I'm ready to lay my life down again. I love him. He is, he is what I'm living for. And that's our hope. That's my hope right now as we close this down, as I open up for a time of prayer, that you would see Jesus' love for you displayed on the cross. That you would see that he's the true and better Samson who became weak for you even though he was strong. So that through his weakness, you could become strong. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the gospel. I know that I'm broken and flawed and and undeserving um, on my own. But the gospel doesn't leave me there. The gospel does show me some of the the brokenness of my own life. 
but it also opens me up to see your grace and your sufficiency in my place. Condemned, you stood so that we could have life eternal. And I pray that today we wouldn't just leave here with some funny quips or, or funny pictures with Kenny Lyles on a muscular body. Um, and we wouldn't leave here with just a bunch of ideas of what not to do and how to avoid sin. God, let us not walk away from this place with a bunch of new rules on sin management for ourselves and behavioral modification. Let us walk away from here with our eyes lifted up from the brokenness around us to see you high and lifted up, to see a God who is wonderful, a God who is above all things and before all things and by whom all things consist, that you are the creator and sustainer of life, that every moment of my life is possible because of you and your love for me. I pray you would help us to see that and not just see it in some detached, ethereal sense, but in this moment that we would come face to face with it in the face of your son who loved us and gave himself for us. As we take communion, as we pray together, as we sing together, speak to our hearts, apply this word to our hearts today in Jesus' name.